0: Would you please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. We'll read together the first six verses of Ephesians chapter 4. It's said that absence makes the heart grow fonder, and oppositely, that familiarity breeds contempt. And experience shows us that there is a great deal of truth to both these statements, both in romantic relationships, the relationships between individuals, but particularly men and women, but also in group relationships. And it's most important for us today to think about the group that we are a part of eternally, namely the Bride of Christ, the church. Familiarity breeds contempt, and absence makes the heart grow fonder. Now, speaking of how absence makes the heart grow fonder, I can say that after a number of years in a community where a lot of people leave, move away, in fact, we lose a quarter of our people every year, so we have to replace 50 people each year, and um, often we hear from people that move away after a few months or a few uh, weeks or sometimes years how much they miss this fellowship. And they will write back or call or send an email and say that they had not realized what a gift this church was until they moved to such and such a community and tried to duplicate it. And then they realized how much God had blessed them by making them a part of Church of the Good Shepherd here in the months or years that they lived in Bloomington. And so moving away was what caused them to realize the blessing that God had given them here. They missed us and absence made their heart grow fonder. Now what about familiarity breeding contempt? Well, this principle, this truism can't be explained positively. They moved away and they thought, oh, how much I miss Church of the Good Shepherd. Um, Fondness and contempt are quite opposite. If you sign a letter fondly yours, it has an entirely different feeling than signing the letter contemptuously yours. No, I've never done it. I actually signed one one time, spittingly yours, but not contemptuous. No, I didn't. That's just a joke. (laughs) And by the way, this is a little... uh, Aside, But I would really encourage you to do the discipline when you write people of signing it something. It is a very good discipline. Uh, Many of you, in fact, maybe everybody but me, um, when you do email, you dispense with any of the kindnesses that have always in history begun and ended letters. And I think that email is, is many good things, but it's also many bad things. And it, it is good for us to think about protecting the unity in our emails. And that's a whole nother sermon. But I would ask you to think about the nature of humility and kindness, even in the way that you begin and end your emails. Well, as I say, signing your emails... Fondly yours or contemptuously yours are completely different things. And this is because fondness and contempt are the opposite. Absence leads to fondness. Familiarity and intimacy lead to contempt. About a year ago, I read a statement. I have no idea where it was, and I don't know the wording. But it was something to the effect that over the years of this pastor's life, as he saw it, there was nothing that so directly was connected to the growth spiritually of an individual than a long-term commitment and a faithful living as a part of one church. And I cannot agree more, and I've forgotten who said it and where I read it, but in my life in the ministry, uh, there is nothing that is, is directly tied to growth in Jesus Christ that I'm able to observe Uh, then a long, permanent, unflinching commitment to the body of Christ and to a particular body of Christ, not just the cosmic general body of Christ. One of the reasons, though, that this is such a difficult thing is that the more committed we are to a church, the more intimate we grow with the members of the church, and familiarity breeds contempt. Now, this morning, we're turning our attention to a scripture text that's focused on the godly response to all the problems that come into a church when we grow intimate with one another and when we grow familiar with one another and when we are tempted to be contemptuous of one another. When, for instance, we decide to live together on a level deeper than the safe formality of Sunday morning and we begin to see one another's warts and moles, one another's annoying habits and sins... And that is when all of us are tempted to let our love grow cold and to begin to despise each other. It happens at marriage, at the conclusion of the honeymoon. And every relationship has a honeymoon period that ends. And then the trouble starts. Someone once said, I love marriage. It's the living together afterwards that causes all the problems. It's that way with marriage. And it's that way with our workplace, it's that way with our play groups, it's that way with our family reunions, it's that way with homeschool co-ops, it's that way with PTA groups, and it's that way with small groups. When familiarity begins to breed contempt, particularly within the church of Jesus Christ, here is the command of the Holy Spirit to us at those specific times. Ephesians 4, 1-7, this is God's word eternally true. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism... One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Verse 1 Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you. Now, what does this section of Ephesians uh, come after? Or another way of asking it is why does this section of Ephesians begin with this word therefore? Each of the Apostle Paul's letters, or they're often called epistles, begin with doctrine and end with the application of that doctrine to life. They begin with doctrine and then they end with the application of that doctrine. Both are needed. Without true doctrine, the way we live our lives would be according to emotion, to sentiment, and to what is referred to as every wind of doctrine, meaning every latest and greatest popular prejudice of what is right and what is wrong. Now, we take it for granted Believing as we do that God is a God of truth and that He is the author of this book, the Bible, and that every word in it is inspired by His Holy Spirit, that without God revealing His truth to us, we would all be lost in ignorance, that we would be unable to think, let alone to do what is right. And so when we read of the founding of the first Christian church in the early chapters of the book of Acts, right after the Gospels, we read that this first Christian church was devoted to four things in its common life. It says in Acts 2.42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now notice the order in which the devotions of this first Christian church are listed. Which comes first? Well, the first one is the teaching of the apostles. The world and Christians who follow the world's prejudices, do not think this way, though, of doctrine. They think of doctrine as at best unneeded and at worst evil. There's a popular saying, the first Sunday I was here in Bloomington, I had my pulpit filled in the evening worship service by a pastor from Columbus, Indiana. And I had to take it on the recommendation of the other leaders of the church that uh, he would be appropriate. And he wasn't. And what I specifically remember of his sermon was him saying, doctrine divides and Christ unites. Now, we as a church don't need to hear a whole lot about that. um, Because one of our basic commitments is to doctrine. But I am going to say a few words about it. What is wrong with this statement that is so popular among Christians today that doctrine divides but Christ unites? Well, of course, one of the things that's wrong with it is, which Christ are you talking about? If Christ unites, who is Jesus Christ? I mean, you take that for granted and you say, well, he was... He's God and man. All right, well, that's a doctrinal statement. Anything you say about Christ is a doctrinal statement. Anything you say about how Christ unites is a doctrinal statement. But, of course, people who are very proud in rejecting doctrine are also ignorant in recognizing doctrine when it's in front of them. They, they don't realize that that statement is an unbelievably doctrinal statement. Well, what's wrong with it? This saying is completely false it is true that false doctrine divides. Think of all the division caused in the Middle Ages by the Roman Catholic Church's doctrine. Think, for instance, of the division that was caused by the Roman Catholic Church teaching on the treasury of merit. All right, And the fact that the treasury of merit belonged to the church. The fact that the leaders of the church could dispense that treasury when people paid them to dispense the treasury. These were all doctrinal commitments they had. Think of what happened when Tetzel went out and took around his box and told people that when they put money in that box, that the souls of their loved ones would spring free. That's a doctrinal commitment of the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church believed that they had the ability, when people paid them, to cause the souls of loved ones to be sprung from purgatory and to go to heaven. Now, that's false doctrine, And that was one of the major causes of the division of the church that's still with us today, namely the division between the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant Church. Now, some of you would want me to quickly uh, say that the Roman Catholic Church no longer believes in the sale of indulgences. And I guess that's probably mostly kind of true. I mean, it's often hard to pin down what the Roman Catholic Church really believes because you can have a statement from the Vatican, but then you can have an entirely different practice that's pervasive across the church. And so then you ask yourself, well, what is the true belief? Is it what is issued as an edict from on high, or is it what you see as the practice? And so I, since I subscribe to a number of Roman Catholic publications, I regularly uh, get offers uh, for me to... Uh, send money to a certain place where they will then work on the souls of my relatives. Now, some of you who uh, have Roman Catholic parents or family members know what I'm talking about. You've gotten these mailings where a particularly, uh, com- a particular community of religious will will say, look, we'll pray. We'll do masses. We'll do this and that. And, and here's an envelope for your donation. So, yeah, you can't say it's direct like Tetzel. You know, the minute you put the money in, the soul springs free, but it's implicit. Okay, that's a false doctrine. Nowhere does Jesus say that he will give, uh, 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 you know, an abundance of merit to his church, which will be able to be trafficked according to the exchange of money. I mean, think about that, people. It's awful. It's no wonder that the church was divided. This is an essential of the faith. We are not saved on the basis of the exchange of money. If the Apostle Paul wrote a letter saying that we didn't need to be circumcised to be saved, how much more can you imagine the Apostle Paul dealing with the sale of indulgences explicitly in the Middle Ages or implicitly today? And... You know, you might be sitting there thinking, well, I know a lot of nice people who are Roman Catholic, and I'll say, I do too. You might be saying, I know a lot of Roman Catholic people who I believe trust only in the shed blood of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. I say, I do too. You say, I know a lot of Roman Catholic people I think will be in heaven by faith alone in Jesus Christ. I say, I do too. Nevertheless, the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church, no matter how much we respect certain actions of the Roman Catholic Church, the doctrine is wrong and has caused division because it's wrong, because it's false. And so we have to be very careful in thinking through this statement, doctrine divides but Christ unites. It's not true. It is false doctrine that divides. It's not doctrine. And ironically, what is the solution to the division that comes about through false doctrine? Well, it is the teaching of and the preaching and the application of doctrine. (laughs) In other words, the solution to the division that comes from false doctrine is to teach true doctrine. It's not just to have warm and chummy relationships with each other. Warm and chummy relationships ain't going to do it. We have to go back and we have to correct the false doctrine because the church is built on God's truth. All right? So... What does the Apostle Paul do in every one of his epistles? He starts the book with doctrine. And then he works his way into practice. It's very interesting if you look at, for instance, the book of Ephesians. In the book of Ephesians, there are 41 commands. All right? 41 plays where the imperative is used instead of the indicative. Now, what's the indicative? It's where a statement is made about the nature of truth. It's doctrine. What's imperative? Well, imperative is where you take the indicative and you apply it by saying, do this. This is the truth. This is how you should obey the truth. This is what is true. Do this because of this truth. Okay? 41 places in the book of Galatians where it gives commands. And of those 41 places, 40 of them are in the second three chapters. You see that? So you've got this consistent breakdown of the letters. You start with the truth, then you work your way into the application of the truth. And the place we just read is the pivot point of the book of Ephesians. This is where we move from the doctrine to the practice, the indicative to the imperative. That's why it begins with the word what? Therefore. Now, what is the first part of the book of Ephesians speaking of? All right. The first part of the book of Ephesians, if you look at Ephesians chapter 2 beginning with verse 11, you'll see this is a sort of a summary section of the first three chapters of doctrine. It says there, Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember... That you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. Now, what enmity is he talking about? Well, he talking about the enmity between the Jews and the Gentiles. It's the same issue in the book of Galatians. It's the old-timers and the Johnny-come-latelys in the church. All right? It changes. The doctrine that we fight over changes, but it's the same old battle. And the old-timers were the Jews, and the Greeks and the Gentiles were the Johnny-come-latelys. And they fought over circumcision constantly. They fought over, really, though, who had sort of the top dog status in the church. Okay? And so what Paul is doing in the book of Ephesians is he's writing to the Christians in Ephesus who are a part of the church, and he's saying to them, you are one, you are one, you are one. And then he gets to the first verse of chapter 3, all right, and he says, therefore, all right, you are one, therefore. Now, if they were one, he wouldn't have to write the second three chapters or the, the second half of the book. I mean, the fact is, Scripture is constantly exhorting us to live in such a way and to believe the doctrine that we are denying. It's not enough to say, you are one, and everybody goes, oh, we're one, you know? You have to say, here's how you were made one, here's why you were made one, here are the old divisions that that oneness is now dispensed with, here's how Jesus Christ did that to us. Therefore, all right, Therefore... We move from what is true to what to do about that truth. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with which you have been called. Therefore, I... And so he he puts himself on the line here. He reminds them that he is in chains. All right? And so your, your hearts are caught up in sympathy for this man, in empathy and love for him. All right? I'm a prisoner of the Lord, I implore you, alright, this is not sort of I, you know, I suggest or I ask, but I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Walk in conformity with, walk in harmony with the doctrine that he has just finished teaching in chapters 1 through 3. Now, the word translated worthy here in verse 1 has a literal meaning to bring up the other beam of the scale. You can imagine a scales or or, a seesaw at a playground, right? And so he's, he's saying, look, put some weight on that other side so that it will be equal, so that you'll have balance on both sides of the scale. All right? In other words, here's the doctrine. All right? Now, live in a way that brings this in conformity with this so that they're on a level plane. All right? I implore you... To walk in a manner that's on the level with your talk. Walk your talk. Walk the doctrine. Live the doctrine. Now, what is our calling and who is it that gave us that calling? Well, in Second Timothy 1.9 it says, "...God has saved us and called us with the holy calling, according to His own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity." And so our calling is the calling of God. In Romans 8:29 and 30, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, He also glorified. And so our calling is from heaven. It's from God. And what will characterize a walk that is equal to that calling that God has given us, what will characterize our living in a way that's equal to that calling, is for us to live a life of humility, of gentleness, of patience, of showing tolerance for one another in love. It will be characterized by our being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. We are to live out the personal and social and interpersonal qualities, the graces which will protect and even cause that unity and peace to grow. Humility, gentleness, patience, tolerance. Now, the word humility here doesn't come out of the prior history of the Greek language, going back to ancient Greece. Centuries earlier. It's a new word coined in New Testament times. And its meaning is lowliness of mind or thinking low thoughts. Its opposite is thinking highly of myself. Interestingly, the Stoic Greek philosopher Epictetus gives us a picture of how much the world did then and still does despise lowliness of mind or humility. By listing this lowliness of mind as the first quality not to be commended. Now we must distinguish between true and false humility. False humility is always calling attention to itself. False humility says, Look at me, I'm humble, can't you tell? It says, I think little of myself and much of my own thinking, little of myself. Can't you tell? It says, have you ever known anyone else who is as humble as I am? I don't fight with others. I'm always ready to subordinate my opinions to those held by others, particularly yours. I will not stand on principle if that will cause tension between us. After all, I know how tenuous truth is. On what basis ought I to think my opinions are better than yours, my truth superior to your truth? This is the kind of thing that false humility does. It's cheap. It has no love for truth and no love for men and women. The Apostle Paul says this about himself. He says in Acts 20, I served the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. And if you plumb the depths of that statement, what you see is the Apostle Paul is saying, I was humble and I was constantly attacked by the Jews. Do you understand this? So whatever humility is, the Apostle Paul had it, and the Apostle Paul's humility caused him to constantly be hated and opposed and attacked. So if the Apostle Paul served the Lord among the Ephesians with all humility, true humility must allow a man to be like Paul. True humility must at times have strong convictions. It must at times hold firmly to the truth. It must at times demand others to submit to the truth. It must at times appear to be exclusive and contrarian and intolerant to the eyes of timidity or of tolerance. In other words, it must be Pauline. I was very interested last night on the blog to see a Roman Catholic woman writing in and saying uh, something to the effect... That, uh, you know, Paul wrote after the Gospels, and Paul is not God. And this is such a common statement to be made among Protestants, among Evangelicals, among all Christians today. People hate Paul. I think it's kind of neat. <laughs> because, you know, when you get a good rebound, you know you hit your target. And it, apparently the Apostle Paul is still hitting his target. Right? True humility must at times have strong convictions. It must be Pauline. There's an old saying by G.K. Chesterton that needs to be resurrected in our tolerant and inclusive and pluralistic. In other words, in our completely unprincipled day. In his book, The Everlasting Man, Chesterton says this. He says, there is a corollary to the conception of being too proud to fight. It is that the humble have to do most of the fighting. And this is true today. In Romans 12:3. through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. And in our evil day, it's often true that it is our pride, our wanting to be thought of more highly than we ought to be thought of, that causes us to be silent in the midst of blasphemy and sacrilege. It causes us to grunt a false assent to the gossip and small talk that mocks God, that mocks the Bible in our break room, in our living room, in our dorm room, and in our hairdresser's shop. True humility has higher thoughts of God and Scripture than it has of myself. It works harder to protect God's reputation than it does to protect my own it is more offended by words spoken against our Heavenly Father than words spoken against ourselves. False humility overlooks such offenses and it cops the posture of magnanimity. True humility wears its heart on its sleeve when it comes to God. you understand what I'm saying? True humility flinches when somebody says Jesus. I'm just using that as an example. But true humility wears, wears its heart on its sleeve when it comes to our Lord who bought us with His own blood. When it comes to insults against God, there's no poker face with true humility. Rather, the godly is willing to be called arrogant as he defends the only true God, knowing the language of exclusivity always offends a decadent, intolerant age. We must not be superficial in our work of humility, allowing the pagan world to define what humility is whatever it is, must be what we see in Jesus and the apostles. The same intensity, the same claims of authority, the same warnings and the same judgments. True humility can't always be mercy and grace and long suffering and gentleness, but must also be justice and truth and zeal for the honor and house and doctrine of God our Father. I hope you know I just quoted Jesus. Or I, I should say I just quoted the statement about Jesus when he cleansed the temple where it says that zeal for his father would consume him, quoting from the book of Psalms. But on the other side, true humility also knows the difference between asserting God's prerogatives and our own. And where pride itself would know no difference between the two. The proud man believes and acts as if every one of his prejudices, every one of his preferences are a matter of principle. The humble man is suspicious of himself and is very prepared to admit the difference between God's truth and his own truth, between what pleases God and what pleases Him. And following the same vein, the proud man holds every theological conviction as equally important, whereas the humble man knows the difference between the doctrine of salvation and the doctrine of holy days. The doctrine of holiness and the schedule of end-time events. The proud man believes that every one of his own theological convictions is an essential of the faith. The humble man is able to distinguish between the essentials and the non-essentials of the faith. In a sermon on this text, Calvin says this, He that can overlook nothing, but is so terribly stern that all sins are, in his opinion, unpardonable, shows also that there is no humanity in him. The proud man holds every theological conviction as equally important, but also equally clear. He doesn't blush to look across church history and to roundly condemn all those who have ever thought in a way different than the way he thinks. He's happy to hold firmly to the prejudices of his own time and assume their accuracy, even if those prejudices are condemned by all Christians who have come before him. 2,000 years of other believers studying and applying Scripture, that means nothing to the proud man. The humble man, though, thinks that the elderly and the dead should be listened to. And not simply swept onto the ash heap of history. He doesn't think that youth... And the latest and the greatest and the modern are superior. But rather, he has a sneaking suspicion that he himself has not yet risen to the level of knowledge and discernment and wisdom that those who came before him had risen to. The humble man also is able to distinguish between doctrines that are explicitly taught in Scripture and doctrines that are implicitly taught in Scripture. And he guards his lips and actions accordingly. The humble man, then, is not known simply by his holding the door and chair for others and recognizing humility is not simply a matter of looking to see who helps fold the chairs and put them up on the dollies after worship. It's not simply a matter of who is at the end of the line at potlucks. It's not simply a matter of who lifts their hands and who kneels in worship. It's not simply a matter of who speaks little and listens much. Yes, these can be indications of humility, but they're only a small part of the equation. Honestly, the real problem we have living with each other and living together in love and unity is more principial and doctrinal than practical. It's when we disagree over baptism, when we have a different view of breastfeeding and child reading and discipline, you say, that's not doctrine. I say, well, you listen to a lot of women, it is doctrine. (laughs) Okay? Okay? It's when we do or don't observe the Lord's Day. It's when we believe in evolution and the ignorant people we sit with in the pew believe in six literal 24-hour days. It's when we believe in six 24-hour literal days and the proud scholars we sit in the pew with believe the days of Genesis are just long periods of time. It's when we believe in courtship and others date... It's when we believe in putting our children in public school, Christian school, or home school. It's when we are circumcised and other members of our church are not circumcised and refuse to be circumcised that our pride kicks in and the unity and the love of the church for which Jesus Christ died is destroyed. It is more often doctrine than practice that causes us, like the Galatians and the Ephesians, to demonstrate our pride and to be schismatic to divide our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is for this precise reason that the Apostle Paul begins both his letter to the Galatians and his letter to the Ephesians with a long section of doctrine showing the basis for our unity and then exhorts the Galatians and Ephesians to be united. If we are obedient to our Lord's command to be humble, we will not judge one another and divide from one another. We will not be schismatics on the basis of doctrinal matters that are neither essentials of the faith nor explicitly commanded in the Word of God. And when we find ourselves wanting to judge and separate ourselves from our family, from our small group, from elders and deacons, from our church, when we want to break fellowship with the believers God has placed us in the midst of, we'd better be prepared... To say that the Christians we are separating from are in rebellion against God. And that their rebellion is something we must distance ourselves from for the sake of the honor of God. To say simply that it's time to move on, that Elder Huck or Elder Deacon, or excuse me, that Elder Huck or Deacon Hess, and I'm choosing the ones that are most laughable for us to be offended by, all right? The Pastor Carell or Pastor Baker, again, those it's most laughable that they'll be offended by. i was carefully keeping myself out of this mix. Uh, that when they, we say that they irritate us and that we find it hard to submit to a church where they are in authority, or that the music we sing and the gym we meet in and the small group Bible studies we started are grating on us. It is at that moment that we hear the voice of God through the Apostle Paul. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Humility and gentleness. Patience and showing tolerance. Now, we all know what we tolerate. Tolerance today Has gotten twisted, alright? Tolerance isn't often thought of positively today. It's sort of a grin and bear it concept. I hate kids with all their mess and noise and bumptiousness, but I'll tolerate them. I hate potlucks, but for the sake of my wife, I'll tolerate one. I despise people that are showy, that make all kinds of noise and call attention to themselves, but I suppose for the sake of appearances, I can keep my true feelings under wraps. You see, even on the university campus where tolerance is spoken of as if it's a positive good, no one is asking that our tolerance be something beyond putting up with people without showing how much you truly, deep down in your heart, despise them and everything they stand for. That's all the university's tolerance is. Put up without showing your true feelings. But notice the kind of tolerance Scripture calls us to. We're to show tolerance for one another what? In love. That's something that no ethics statement of any university has ever asked from you. We're not enough for us to tolerate, but we're to tolerate in love. It's one thing to tolerate someone, but something entirely different to love someone. We are commanded to show tolerance for one another in love. What is it we're to tolerate? Well, it's something that is not nice. You don't tolerate rosebuds or ice cream or flowering crab apples or a fresh white blanket of snow. Things beautiful and sweet and often things holy need no tolerance. Tolerance rather we tolerate and bear up under and endure things that are ugly and harsh and dirty and low we tolerate people who are proud and bitter and brash and self-promoting and sinful and why we do it out of love remembering the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ in Ephesians 4 verse 32 be kind to one another tender hearted forgiving each other just as god in Christ also has forgiven you. So why am I preaching this this Sunday? I'm preaching it because, for a number of reasons, uh, I'm preaching it because we have once again suffered the, the departure of brothers and sisters in Christ that we love a few months ago. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm preaching this because Our small groups have now gotten to the point where you're irritating each other. I'm preaching this because some of you have been married just long enough to be at the end of the honeymoon and to begin to see the habits that are obnoxious. And some of you have been married long enough to be at the point of despair over those habits. In other words, I'm preaching it because we need it. And I just ask you what do you want? Do you want a mega church with anonymity? That's what year after year our church has suffered. People who have sin and their sins finally come into the open, the minute they come into the open so they can't deny them, what do they do? But they split. Do you understand this? And this is a decision to violate the vows that they have taken before God. That is what it is. And it is a serious attack upon Jesus Christ. If you are going to leave your marriage, you better have something like the desertion of an unbeliever or pornea to justify your leaving the marriage. Do you understand that? And one of those two, it's the other that leaves the marriage, not you. Anyone who says, yes, I know I took my vows, but really, we are incompatible. I've actually had Christians say that to me. Why? What happened with your divorce? Well, we were incompatible. Don't you realize that If you're married and you're sitting next to a woman, she is incompatible with you. (laughs) I mean, this is the definition of marriage. Two mutually incompatible forces melded together. Not melted, melded. And melding is what a blacksmith does. If you're sitting next to a Christian, you are incompatible with that Christian. Because that Christian doesn't have a proper recognition of your importance in this world. (laughs) Nor of the accuracy of all your judgments of doctrine. If you're sitting next to anyone, you are incompatible with them because you are the measure of all things. Do you understand this? And the decision to go into a church is the decision for your sins to become public. And they will out. There is not one biblical church in the country that does not regularly have people's sins come out. The sins of the pastor because he gets up and makes a fool of himself every single Sunday morning. And you can't open your mouth and say a lot of words without sin being present. I mean, you know I'm quoting scripture, right? All right. Good. Say it louder. That's right. That's right. So you start with me and sitting under my preaching is a decision you make that you are going to be ministered to by someone who has feet of clay. He is a jar of clay. He is a sinner. He is a man. He is a sinner. He is a sinner. He is a man. All right. And then you have deacons and elders who are sinners. You have Titus, two women who are sinners You have a husband who is a sinner. You have a mother and a father who are sinners, right? Every single one of these relationships, God has placed you together with someone who is a sinner. Alright? And then you go into your small groups and no longer is there sin across the sanctuary from you or the gymnasium. It is now right there in your living room. And it is ugly. Alright? They don't discipline their children the way they should. Now... You all know how difficult it is to be around someone that doesn't discipline their children the way they should. But imagine what it's like to be the mother of that child who isn't well disciplined. Imagine how she will try to escape intimacy with you knowing how you're judging her. Right? And so the question is not just your preferences. What are you doing to make it easy for her to be in your presence while she knows that she hasn't quite made the measure? Do you understand this? In other words... We have to love each other. I had Kent Hughes say to me about a year ago when we were discussing something, he said, you know, Tim, I've found over the years that when you confront people, they get angry and leave. Now, I love Kent, but if I were going to really respond with the disrespect that that I might, I would go, duh... You know, this is the experience of us as Christians. You know, how many times, if the truth were known, would you have gotten up and left your pig-headed, selfish husband had you been able to? Don't answer. You know, how many times, those of you who are children, would you have gotten up and left your home because of the pig-headed selfishness of your mother? Oh, no. No. Why did I say mother? Well, because nobody ever thinks their mother sins. Last night, I was talking at the table and talking about the sin of all of us. And I said, you know, do you think that your mother sins? And Taylor was behind me on the floor and he said, no. (laughs) Mothers always get off easy, but that's because mothers never get off easy. The hardest work is done by a mother from the moment that life comes into the world. And so there's a certain slack that we ought to cut mothers. But brothers and sisters, if a mother is as intimate with her child as she is, (laughs) okay, and she loves that child, how can we not love one another? Is there anything a mother doesn't know about her child? And that she loves that child. God has placed that love in her heart. That's the kind of love that should pervade this church. Why? Because we were messy and stinky and naked and bloody and lying on the ground. And the Bible tells us that God saw us, that he picked us up, that he washed us off, and he put us in his arms and he carried us tenderly. Now, how can we not do that with one another? And you say, well, I don't want to be naked. I don't want to be bloody. I don't want to be picked up and cleaned. And I say, yup. and that's a violation against the unity of the church that's just as bad as those who look at you and say, ooh, he stinks, and I'm not going to clean him and pick him up. In other words, it requires us to be humble in being cared for in our dirtiness and bloodiness and sin, and it requires us to be humble in caring for those who are dirty and bloody and sinful. And that's what this church is. We are not an anonymous clump of individuals who show up on a Sunday morning and then go out having heard a nice, pleasant thought for the week. I don't need a pleasant thought. I need God. And I need God through you correcting me, encouraging me, exhorting me. I need you to pick me up and wash me. Okay? And that's who we are as a church. So if that's not what you're into, you know where to go. <laughs> Anywhere, you know, to any church in this community. All right? And, and don't worry. They'll never expect anything out of you other than that you show up and pay. Okay? But here, you will have to be a sinner, and you will have to love sinners. Let's pray. Father, we admit that we are a far cry from what we say. And I particularly, Father, ask You to have mercy on me that I will not be as critical of my wife as I am. Father, help me to love her. and to not just